0: Welcome to Seed Phrase, a podcast speaking with people close to art, blockchains, or both. Seed Phrase is hosted by the new Institute Hamburg and is recorded there with a live audience. I'm Simon Denny, an artist who unpacks stories about technologies. And I ask each guest to choose 12 words, their personal Seed Phrase, which is then minted as an NFT. This session's guest is geographer, researcher, artist, and chief strategy officer at Web3 privacy company NIM, Jaya Clara Brecker. Jario is one of the people that's guided my thoughts on art and blockchains since I began making art about crypto. In the conversation, we discuss her thoughts on the increasing importance of privacy, the technical dialogue between mixed nets, token economics, AI and blockchains, but also her incisive knowledge about the seemingly unlikely political influences on crypto. From social movements and peer-to-peer through the market-as-information-system theories of Austrian economist and Mont Pelerin Society founder Friedrich Hayek. We also cover her thoughts on the work of others like Karen Barad and Lana Schwartz, and the experiences of working in and out of art, companies, and academia. I start the conversation by asking Jaya where she would situate her practice at the moment, given that she's worked across so many disciplines.
1: My main practice is I work uh, in a company called NIM, which is a decentralized, incentivized privacy network which means it's a network composed of nodes that exist all over the world. Um, those nodes provide various privacy protections, and they participate in uh, running this infrastructure because they are um, incentivized and rewarded for doing so through an internal crypto token called NIM. So that's one part of my practice, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm head of strategy at NIM. Um, Then I also have another current position, which is as a fellow at the Weizenbaum Institute in Berlin. um, And that's an interdisciplinary institute. And that is kind of more related to my academic background, um, which spans quite a few disciplines as well. So academically speaking, I'm primarily a geographer. So I wrote my PhD in geography, but it was digital geography specifically. And previous to that, I was also a student of political economy. And previous to that, I was also an art student back in the day. So uh, let's say my practice kind of weaves in and out of the cultural sector, art sector, um, but very much also in the technology industry and very much also in technology policy. I sometimes advise the European Commission. Um, and then also I try and keep a foot in research. You know, it's always important to kind of take a step out and really reflect on what's going on, read a bit more widely um, in order to step back into um, discourses and practices and make some um, informed decisions. So,
0: That's exactly the answer I was looking for. So thank, you, <laughs> thank you for that, Gaia. I also wanted to expand on that and just ask, like, where you feel those different contexts that you kind of have different feet in and disciplines you draw on maybe like allow for different types of action opportunities uh i don't know what ways of working like why choose to work in all of those spaces rather than one and do those spaces like have particular advantages like as a geographer as an academic geographer can you do x and as a policy advising person can you do y or do they interbleed very much i'd love to hear you say a bit more about that
1: yeah, I mean, it's been more of a kind of process, let's say, that's ended up with me now having a foot in all these different disciplines. And it's usually been because I've been involved in one discipline and then I kind of feel like I've reached some limitations in terms of what I'm trying to do um, and then shift over and find some opportunities elsewhere. And so, you know, I think the kind of most obvious move and most recent move has definitely been, you know, working, um, writing a PhD, um, and uh, and then doing a postdoc afterwards, and working very much in the academic context, um, and then occasionally, you know, advising, being pulled into both the art world and being pulled into definitely the technology industry as well, advising on processes in those areas. So. My PhD was was on, it was a political analysis of uh, the early days of blockchain technology. So Bitcoin and Ethereum, just as Ethereum was emerging. And um, because I was, uh, I guess, one of only a very few amount of people that were actually paying attention to this space that came from the social sciences. I was kind of uh, very quickly drawn into these spaces. People kind of drew on my knowledge quite a bit in terms of like trying to reflect on what do these technological developments mean in terms of broader kind of social dynamics, right? And so then that becomes a very kind of enticing prospect. You're, you're actually literally involved in building things rather than just writing about things. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I you know, very much enjoy doing with an at NIM right now. It's like the the, the possibility to um, yeah, to actually build something that has um, some some real effects rather than commenting from the sidelines, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I also constantly come up against limitations because you know the kinds of compromises that you have to make when you're engaged in a in a real world project like that, um, and the kinds of uh, very kind of reactive or well, it's not always reactive. That's the wrong way to put it, but more that you're. Very much in the moment, um, you know, I do constantly miss, you know, come, taking a step out and really being able to reflect um, more broadly on what's going on. So, having a foot in academia is very important for doing so. I actually think that. I mean, what I'm finding is... Um, I don't know if this is particular to the blockchain industry. I think it's, like, maybe a more general trend. I'm starting to see a lot of people in the social sciences taking a step into industry mm. um, and trying to kind of work, you know, as geographers, as anthropologists, um, also as artists, but actually, like, within, you know, and and with, you know, industry. Um, and uh, I think there's, there's pros and cons to doing that. You know, mm. I know that there's some people in academia that... You know, there's obviously the ethical question of like, well, if you're being paid, right, then like, how does that taint your research, right? How does that kind of skew your, your bias in a sense? Um, but I think once you pay attention and are upfront and transparent about um, those implications, uh, there is something very generative that, that can happen there. And I think not just generative, but really important, you know. Um, I think it's important as uh, social scientists, philosophers and artists to really take a step in and engage with um, especially the technology industry as an industry that is fundamentally transforming social relations and political relations and economic relations right now.
0: Yeah that resonates a lot with my own feelings and also observations. I think it's really interesting. I spent some time recently in Berkeley in California at a little outfit run by a guy called Tobias Rees called Transformations of the Human. And like what he said about companies, which resonated with me as an artist, is this idea that companies are actually kind of like empirical research devices. They're like things that go out with a hypothesis into the world and kind of perform a thing and see what happens. And then they iterate on empirical data as it happens, which is something that is very difficult to do without such a, a vehicle. Now, one could critique that position, I think, but it sounds like some of that is resonating with the reason why, for example, you choose to work with your skill set and your background in the context of a technology company.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I as usual, it's kind of, I both agree and I disagree. <laughs> as in, like, the that that is true. Companies do do that. And it's actually, it's super fascinating to be part of a company and see how that plays out, right? Because, you know, companies you know, because there is, exactly because there is a bottom line that's directly affected, you have to do the empirical research correctly, right? Um, And if you don't do it correctly, there's an immediate impact. Um, But it is a particular form of empirical research that has a very specific set of interests, which is the bottom line, right? Um, And so I think, you know, we shouldn't be blind to that either. And, you know, I think it's, it's very easy to get kind of caught up and enamored by, you know, the company the corporation right. the, you know um and uh, it's it's super important that there's other forms of empirical research that's going on and i'm actually like a, a not just a little bit concerned but very worried about the state of um research institutions and in higher education as an independent body of uh, of knowledge production because mm. um You know, higher education is being undermined, and the the value of higher education, um, and especially the social sciences and humanities, is is, has been under attack for quite some time. Under attack. Uh, under like defunded um, mm. a casualized mm. you know so you know one of the reasons why I also stepped into industry is because the the, the prospects of careers within you know universities is actually pretty bleak right now um, right. people are on extremely temporary contracts um, and you know kind of hopping from one to the next I mean I know for people that you know for artists it's like well it still looks like a fairly kind of luxurious context I mean precarity in the art world is, is definitely worse but you know, as a yeah, as a job and as a career prospect, academia is pretty toxic at the moment.
0: And that's to do with uh, the way that it's being. I mean, how would you explain that phenomenon? Casualized. I mean, yeah. it's just it's casualized. Yeah. It's
1: it's defunded. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm most familiar with the UK context, sure. so I can't speak for the rest of Europe. I think the rest of Europe has still uh, more protections in place for um, you know knowledge production as a kind of like social uh, social public good you know that that yeah. needs to be protected but in the uk it's you know universities have g- gone in a different direction mm-hmm. and you're it, people are really feeling the consequences right now so that's it's quite concerning you know
0: yeah sure uh, all good things to be uh, aware of and that's one of the reasons why i really like living and working in germany actually it's because these things are valued and comparatively well-funded and less casualized than other places i want to pivot a little bit out of the intro, I guess, kind of who you are questions into some of the structure of the conversation. And as I say, this podcast is also about producing a kind of NFT relic, uh, which is uh, playing off this notion of a seed phrase, which I'm sure you're very familiar with anyway. To just reiterate for listeners, like uh, a seed phrase is um, the kind of private key that you're supposed to not give to anybody when you open most a couple kinds of crypto wallets. And I ask each guest to kind of like make their own seed phrase, which is 12 words. And I want to maybe ask you to like read your 12 words if you have them on hand or I can read them for you. Uh, but I think it's cooler if you read them. Could I can, you read,
1: or can you show me on your yes, phone? Yes, uh, I can absolutely I <laughs> don't have show them you. up.
0: Yeah. Um, so there they are. Like, yeah.
1: Okay. Um, good intention, token maker, market taker, price hacker, blind design world burns.
0: <laughs> Great. One of the ways we like to use these is kind of like a frame for how to talk about a bunch of stuff you're up to. So I'm going to kind of like go through some of those terms <laughs> and then invite you to speak to a number of projects that... I think, resonate with some of these terms that you've brought up. So I kind of coupled yours uh, because they seem to be couples of words rather than single words. And good intention is the first one. And I thought, you've already mentioned this, but like, I think where I first came across your work, which was hugely inspiring to me as an artist who was trying to make work uh, about blockchain um, that was neither trying to promote it, nor trying to tear it down, but trying to understand what the hell was emerging, was your thesis, disassembling the trust machine, and so maybe you can say a little, the reason why I bring this together with good intentions is because I think um, your your intentions might have been good making this, but also um, I think it gave a really interesting political context, uh, which was an unusual mix um, of things. When I first came across blockchains, I was like, what the hell is going on here? On the one side, you have like, yeah, uh, social movements. And on the other side, all kind of an organizing feel that talks about community and talks about like bringing together people to do things in organized groups across geographical space. And on the other hand, you have like this kind of like fairly heavy economics content as well. And I saw remnants of Hayek in that, And I made artworks that sort of tried to position when Ethereum was coming out, for example, like a Vitalik shown uh, alongside figures like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, but also in kind of a language of fantasy and of kind of social organizing. So maybe you can start talking about that and give us like a brief intro into what that was and maybe how you would do it differently now as well.
1: My, I mean, it's interesting you put it with good intention, because <laughs> uh, when I wrote good intention, I meant it a little bit more as a critical take, mm-hmm. let's say, on good intention, right? Yeah. So this idea of like, because, you know, the blockchain space is like full of good intentions, um, but it's good intentions that rarely take the trouble to really kind of engage more deeply with the people that they're supposedly trying to kind of save or help through this technology. And it's more, you know, it, it, oftentimes it's, it's a kind of projects that get conceptualized in the abstract um, with good intentions, good slides, good promises, good stories, good narratives. But then the way that they actually play out, uh, largely because there's a, a, there's a lack of real in-depth engagement with the real world and with the real people that are supposedly going to benefit from this technology, um, you know, the, the way that they, that it plays out is usually, like, either entirely ineffective mm. or, um, you know, wildly kind of, like, damaging or speculative or, mm. or whatever else. So I wouldn't, I mean, my, my PhD, I, it wasn't exactly good intentions. <laughs> I mean, in but, that sense... I mean, sense, you also
0: wrote this, like, Hippocratic Oath at the time, true. similar, which yeah, I felt yeah. was, like, trying to kind of... I guess the reason why I lumped it under that is, like, it's, like... Uh, I felt like you were trying to genuinely come to the space I was with information that exactly, wasn't there exactly. or something like that. That's like,
1: true. I had good intentions. <laughs> That's true. With my engagement with this space, you know, I wanted to kind of like hold off a little bit on what would be a very easy, very quick dismissal from a kind of, a traditional left political economy critique of the space. You know, I, I feel like when, when I started to write the PhD, I was, I knew that that could be done. Mm. Um, and I was seeing people starting to do that Mm. and I figured, okay, you know, but is there a way of engaging with this field that, um, you know, takes the left political economy critique as a given, like that critique has already been done. Um, what else is there? So that, that was the aim. That was the kind of approach that I took. Um, so the PhD, the title Disassembling the Trust Machine, Three Cuts on the Political Matter of Blockchain. Um, I looked at, you know, I took a, a philosopher um, called Karen Barad um, and, I, and I used her work um, very much to try and deal with another issue at play in, in the blockchain space, which is a kind of technological determinism. Um, so this idea of, I mean, this is like, let's say this is one of the core points of the PhD. (laughs) I could sit and do a whole talk on the PhD if it was going to do, but one of the core points was really trying to kind of address, you know, the technological determinism. And, And what I wanted to do was like, you know, um, Uh, meet the blockchain space halfway, so to speak. So be like, yes, it is true that once you code something, um, once you set up a technical architecture, it does exist objectively and it does um, enact certain things objectively. Now, does that mean that that is an objective reality that is um, far more superior or more true than our subjective um, individual experiences? No, no you know, there is a connection between the subjective and the objective that is very important to kind of draw out in terms of how these things get built and how they then play out, right? So I use Karen Barad to, you know, as a philosophical foundation to really kind of draw together how does the subjective interact with the objective world? And, you know, lucky for me, um, history really kind of helped me out here because I wrote the PhD, you know, I started doing the research at the height of, like, the enthusiasm around technological uh, determinism and this idea of let's create uh, objective architectures that will solve the problem of politics, that will solve the problem of power, that will solve the problem of social coordination, um, and it will do so through a kind of neutral objective mechanism, which is beautiful code, you know, that's written from kind of like super rational and and, uh, well-researched empirical uh, white papers, you know, um, everything kind of like sounding very uh, perfect in a sense on paper, right? Um, And sounding very powerful as well, right? As a political or as a kind of anti-political narrative. Um, luckily, what then happened was you know this major DAO hack um, in the Ethereum space, and I spoke about this a little bit earlier today. So half of you have already heard this story. Um, but uh, what happened was um, you know the the you know there was this idea you know this was kind of. Um, I mean, to trace a kind of quick history. So you had, you know, Bitcoin came about and then people realized, okay, we can use the kind of core technology of Bitcoin, you know, called the blockchain to create kind of other uh, tokens, other kinds of coins. Um, and then Ethereum came along and, so, and and it was a project where it's like, not only can we use this uh, this uh, linear ledger to create currency and kind of track transactions, we can use this ledger also to decentralize computation, right? Um, and then, so then it was this idea of not just currencies, but um, smart contracts. So you can have contracts that run code on blockchains. This was Ethereum's big innovation. Um, So then it's like, now what is a contract, right? A contract is a way to organize social relationships and social obligations. So then there was this idea of like, we can assemble smart contracts to make out what is a decentralized autonomous organization. So is this idea of like a cluster of these contracts will, you know, resolve Uh, the need for, or will resolve the problem of like messy agreements or messy social dynamics. It's like, it's all written in code, you know, it's open source, everybody can monitor the code. Um, And then that code can then like govern, you know, big amounts of money and big, you know, sums of of resources. So, you know, the DAO, um, like the DAO, (laughs) which is still called the DAO, was the first experiment of, of this kind to like really like make it happen for real? This had been a dream in the space for a while. Um, so you know, a bunch of guys coded this thing up, and it had, you know, millions and millions of, of uh, dollars worth of Ethereum, the, the cryptocurrency, um, uh, locked up in this smart contract, right? Um, then what happened was there was a hack of, of that smart contract. There was a kind of little loop that someone had had noticed um, where, you know, you, the contract would start to repeatedly pay out Ethereum to a, a separate account. So someone was leaking this fund um, you know, for millions of dollars. And everyone could see it happening because it's a public, immu- you know, it's a public ledger. Um, so everyone was witnessing this this taking place and the space kind of freaked out, right? And two fractions appeared. So one fraction was the kind of like uh, the diehard, you know, the code, you know, code is law people. And it was the people that really believed in the the dream that like through code and through technical architectures, we're gonna get rid of human messiness, right? So. By, you know, sticking to that story, then it then means that, like, if it was coded into the smart contract, that is law. It must play out that way. You know, the fact that someone can then, like, leak the funds, well, you know, too bad. It's just, you know, we have to kind of, like, follow what was written up um, in the code. That was the agreement, you know, um, and then another group of, uh, of people, uh, quite a substantial group of people, was like, hang on, you know, like, no, like, we don't want these funds to be stolen. Like, we need to sort, this is obviously a mistake, this is obviously a flaw, we need to kind of sort this out. Um, so it was a kind of a real moment of maturity for the space, when a lot of people realized, like, actually, you know, uh, they realized a very basic fact, which is, Um, At the end of the day, some human is coding this thing up, right? So code doesn't just appear magically, you know, existing, you know, just out of nothing um, as an objective reality. No, someone actually needs to sit there, come up with an idea around how we want to organize our relationships, write it up into code. That code, you know, is going to have all kinds of bugs, um, you know, and you, you can add, I don't know, so much else to that, right? You can start talking about, like, you know, when the code becomes obsolete, what kind of hardware it can run on, all this kind of stuff. And then you start, you know, people's minds start to open and, you know, they looked up from their little neat models that were written out in the white papers and realized, oh, actually, we live in a complex world. Things go wrong every once in a while. You know, it's like stuff needs to get fixed, stuff needs to get updated. And we're all constantly actively making decisions about how to do so. So what happened was the space, you know, um, had to start to deal with this, the question of decision making and the question of politics and the question of difference and how do you resolve difference in in social groups. You know, all, all of this stuff is like fairly straightforward for anyone who's been involved in politics or social sciences or pretty much any ordinary human being. But, you know, the narrative of this kind of objective technological mechanism that could finally resolve the problem of human messiness politics and the, the question of social organization at scale was just so enticing that people forgot about all this fact you know so my phd was was very much kind of like tracing through these events um very much kind of theorizing these events um and yeah using um the thinking of Karen Barad really is the the grounding for doing so. And then I drew in a little bit of, I mean, I drew from here and there and all over the place. I wrote it in the geography department, but then I was like, I grabbed Ranciere to talk about politics and, and, uh, you know, uh, and I grabbed some, you know, Catherine Youssoff to talk about the limitations of politics, you know. um, At what point can, you know, at what point can, can, do we have to stop talking about politics? Because it's like you, you only talk about politics about the things that, you already know that there's a disagreement about, but what about all the things that are not taken into account, and so on and so forth? So, I can talk for a long time about my PhD, but I think we should move on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs>
0: it's interesting. Like, also that event has recently got some uh, like important information added to it, right? I don't know if you came across this Laura Shin book that was just released about yeah. like narrativizing the history of Ethereum, kind yep. of, and identified the hacker. Exactly. Right? I don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah, know. I'd love to have your quick take on that.
1: I uh, I actually haven't read the book, so right. Yeah. Then I you do go. need to. I do need to read it, but I'm too busy doing other things right now.
0: Right. Well, you maybe know. that's actually a, a nice transition to kind of the next couple of words that we have in your yes. C phrase, which is token maker. Yes. I'm sure. You could say many things about token makers in this space, but like what I thought it resonated with is uh, was Nim, uh, the project that you briefly introduced as you um, introduced yourself. And I have to say, like when I first came across Nim, I was a little bit confused. Like as an artist who also follows the. Um, the blockchain space i'm like very interested in all sorts of companies being formed but nim felt like something quite different um, and it felt like it was coming actually from quite a different tradition than let's say some other kind of like um, ethereum based startup or or whatever nft space type thing that i was interested in and i guess that's because it does kind of draw on a different lineage in some ways um, but you do make tokens and my understanding of it is it is a kind of extension of the the aims of the tor project but for a more uh, contemporary I guess, uh, environment and also understanding of maybe network dynamics and, and, and what is needed to create and keep privacy in a bigger system. And I think maybe some of the things that I think could be interesting to talk about, um, as you talk about this could be like, yeah, maybe introducing mixed nets as a, as a technology and saying what's novel about adding incentive structures from blockchain token makers, uh, to that. But also, I guess, maybe to talk about some of the people that are involved in Nim, because I think as a kind of social group of people coming together to do a thing, it's also a really interesting thing. And yeah, maybe that's a prompt.
1: Yeah. Yes, Nim, Super fun project to be involved in, partially because it does tie quite a bit of my background also together because the people that are involved in the project... Um, are people that I've known for a number of years. Quite a few of them come from, vaguely speaking, the kind of left anarchists uh, background. Um, quite a few of them were involved in... Um, well, some, some were involved in indie media back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, indie media was an independent network of uh, media activists, in a sense, and... Um, and then we have, like, you know, f- famous characters involved as well, like Chelsea Manning is is on our team, um, and we have Ahmed Gapur also, who, you know, is a lawyer that was um, uh, defending, you know, Guantanamo Bay um, detainees. So we have, like, some substantial characters that come from, you know, absolutely from kind of more of a left political spectrum than is uh, typically the case in the blockchain startup world. Um, But also people who have been involved in open source software development for a very long time. Um, And the, you know, the, the enticing thing about, you know, the blockchain space is that, like, okay maybe finally we can produce open source software that is not um, going to, you know, that, and get people paid, you know, right. <laughs> where people are not going to like burn out, right? Um, and produce Not free like, as in beer. Yeah, exactly. Um, free as in freedom and not beer. Right. Um, yeah, so it, in that sense, it is a kind of atypical project in the space. It's also atypical um, in terms of the technical architecture. Um, like you said, uh, The core technology is a mixnet and the blockchain facilitates the mixnet. There's a caveat to that, uh, which I'll expand on in a minute. Um, And I can't wait to expand on that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) But you will. Yeah, but I will. Uh, First, to mixnets. So as I explained in the beginning, mixnets nets um, are, it's a, it's a form of kind of technology that takes internet traffic um, and then it mixes it. So you have, you know, a kind of, you have a global network of nodes, um, you know, someone that's browsing online or sending a message online, your message will, um, you know, instead of going to a central server and then going back out to, to the recipient's um, phone or device or whatever, it'll get sent through several layers of what are called mix nodes. And those mixed nodes take your traffic and everybody else's traffic and mixes it together um, and in, uh, encrypts it in several layers of encryption, making every data packet look exactly the same. So what that does is it makes it impossible to trace the patterns of communication. Um, and it also hides the metadata of your communications. And why is this important? I mean, it might seem like a kind of extraordinary, over-the-top kind of privacy protections because we have encryption, right? So surely we just encrypt our community. Know, What's up is encrypted, isn't that good enough? Signal is encrypted, isn't that good enough? Um, actually, when it comes to uh, forms of surveillance that's, that it's driven by, especially by machine learning, um, it's not good enough. Uh, you can deduct a lot um, of information from the metadata of a message, which is still visible when a message is encrypted. Um, and you can d- deduct a lot of information from the patterns of people's communications. So, for example, um, you, know, you can observe if someone is speaking to you know, someone else um, you know, in the late hours of the evening on a regular basis, you can make some assumptions about what that relationship is about, right? Um, and then if in addition to that, you can see the size of data that's being sent back and forth, You know, if it's an image or not, if it's a video file or not. Um, you can see, uh, the geolocation of where it's sent from and all of that information when it's, you know, um, structured as metadata, um, is actually the language of machines. So, you know, surveillance is driven by machine learning rather than human observation. It's, this is, this is the surveillance, right? That's what's going on. And it's in fact, much more easily readable than, um, you know, the kind of, uh, The content of the message, because the content of the message, it's like you might have your kind of own secret language, your little like your ways of talking to your lover or your ways of talking to your parents or whatever else, which is very peculiar to you. Right. Um, But when it comes to the metadata, it's like there's a lot of kind of very easily machine readable information that can be um, extracted from that. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, the kind of problem of surveillance is something that is going to intensify, you know, more and more of our interactions are digitally mediated, um, everything from kind of like, you know, medical to, uh, records, to schooling, to private life and everything, especially after COVID.
0: And increasingly might have a price signal attached to it.
1: Exactly. Increasingly has a price signal attached to it. And in fact, like, um uh you know financial surveillance is like it's a huge deal, surveillance of payments is is a huge deal right um so yeah so that's the kind of the the mixed nets bit and the reason why mixed nets are important um, it is so uh, tor which some people might be familiar with um, you know has been around for for many years and you know has been a super important uh, for privacy protection um Nim is kind of fairly similar to Tor in some senses, um, but there are some, you know, some key differences. And you know, from our perspective, there's definitely the need for both, especially right now because of the nature of the of our system. It's our system is better for things like payments and messages, but Tor is definitely better for browsing. Um, for web browsing, and that's just because of the kind of latency. But what we're trying to do is also ensure um, a certain type of scalability of the system. And that's where the token uh, and the token economics becomes important, where the token economics um, kind of uh, enables the system to scale up when needed and scale down when needed. So, what does that mean? It means that like um, nodes in the network are actually paid for um, doing this service of uh, mixing. So, you know, as more and more traffic starts going through the network, um, nodes, you know, there's going to be more and more nodes. Nodes are kind of in- there's more nodes that are incentivized to join the network to actually like accommodate for that um, increased traffic, um, and vice versa. Um, then there's like all kinds of other nifty aspects to the token economics. And I could get into that a little bit because I guess for people that are not in this space, it maybe gives a bit of an insight into, you know, what, you know, incentive design actually is when it comes to uh, token economics and crypto economics. Should I do that? Yeah, I
0: think that sounds really cool because also it kind of like brings us on to like uh, some of the other other points in your, in your system as well. <laughs> like maybe this is overlapping with price hacker.
1: Um, yeah, well, maybe a little bit, although like what I meant with price hacking. I
0: don't, don't want to yeah. delve into that. So you, yeah, let's do the token economics bit. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, so uh, just to kind of expand a bit on this thing of like, okay, so, you know, uh, people running mixed nodes in our network, they'll get paid with, you know, NIM, and they get paid on the basis of... Um, not just the amount of work that they do, because the way the network is structured is all the nodes are going to be doing pretty much the same amount of, of work, so the uh, same amount of traffic will be passing through each node um, now what, what the token economics is important for apart from kind of making sure people are you know paid fairly for doing this effort of like mixing traffic um, and running machines um, now what, what it does is also it, it's, it's designed to incentivize uh, good quality um, privacy protections. So, you know what you know. What do we do with a node that just like keeps going off and online? You know, and a kind of like system like this that's kind of rickety. Because think about it. You've got like nodes all over the world, right? And you know, there's no kind of like person ensuring that each of these nodes are up to scratch. Um, so, how can you do that? Like one of the ways that we've designed the system is that anybody who holds Nim tokens um, can you know put a stake they can delegate their tokens to a node that they believe is going to do a good job of mixing traffic, that they believe is going to have good uptime, you know, 100% uptime and actually like do the service correctly, right? Um, And that stake that gets delegated to that node acts as that node's reputation. And that reputation immediately impacts how often the node is selected to actually participate and do the work in the network, um, which means that it immediately impacts how much money that person is going to earn on the other end, right? Um, in turn, people who are delegating to that node also earn a share of the rewards or the payments that, the, that that node gets. So you as a delegator, it's in your best interest to delegate to nodes who have perfect uptime, because if they don't, they get paid less, right? Um which also means that... So, so you're basically like you're serving kind of two purposes. Like an ordinary person with normal NIM tokens, um, you know, delegates those tokens as a way to ensure the kind of quality of the network. But that in turn also benefits you economically because you earn a share of it. So it's like, it's a kind of incentive design, you know. Yeah, that's kind of one little slice of the, of the kind of token economic design. I mean, we can delve into that more if people are interested. But it's just to show how... Um, you know, when it comes to uh, token economic designs and and kind of market designs in the crypto space, these are the kinds of things that people are thinking about. And these are the kinds of things that engineers care about, right? Engineers care care about, like, um, how can we design an incentive scheme that makes the tech work properly, right? Um, And then the economics is designed around serving that purpose. Um, And you can imagine all kinds of different, you know, things that people want to try and achieve through, you know, using economic design. So, it's a way to say that this has become a design space essentially, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, maybe that's actually a perfect transition into market taker, which is like the next couplet. I guess I'm drawing on something you've recently published called "The Market is a Gun to Your Head, a Tool in Your Hand, or an Escape Route from Hell," which I also thought was like a really sticky title uh, for something. <laughs> but I think it talks about some of the ways that you can use incentive design right to like um, to your benefit or against other things that you're not interested in. Maybe you could expand on some of the stuff on that.
1: Yeah, it was that was a text that I wrote. Um, And I wrote it very quickly and I wrote it kind of quite furiously (laughs) (laughs) because I had some points that I wanted to make and I wanted to make them quickly. And it was, you know, it was really addressing the political economic ignorance that exists in the crypto space and especially also addressing a little bit the kind of mm, the, the uncritical way that people were engaging with markets and market economics. So... There's a kind of brand of, uh, what do they call themselves? It's like free market anarchists or something? Oh, uh, anarcho-capitalists. Anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. yeah.
0: Murray. Uh, Ross-Bard. Should, yeah, Rothbard. Yeah, Rothbard. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so like of the Rothbardian ilk. Right. Um, and people that, that feel that, you know, markets, have, they have a the perspective that markets are anti-authoritarian. Um, And for those who were around earlier today, when I was speaking about it, you know, this is, again, it harks back to kind of some Hayekian ideas and generally Austrian school economics um, that, uh, you know, that kind of put forward the idea that markets are these kind of like anti-authoritarian decentralized spaces that kind of encourage both dynamism and freedom in society, right? Yeah. and uh, in this piece, you know, it's a three-part piece. And, you know, I take people through a kind of, like, whiz tour of, like, okay, what are the critiques of that, you know? So it's, like, the market actually is, you know, is a form, is is authoritarianism in itself, right? So it's a, it's a different form of authoritarianism. So the market has a gun to your head, you know? Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into the piece, but it's basically like trying to kind of, like, mm, plot out a a political-economic history where it's, like, you go from, okay, kind of, like, early critiques of market economics um, through to, okay, what, you know, what, you know, the market as a tool in your hand, so the market as a design space, like I mentioned before. Um, How can you actually, like, uh, instead of, like... um, The market being like the hand of of god or like the kind of neutral and again this this is very close to what's happening in the blockchain space in terms of technological determinism but determinism but this idea of the market as a kind of more objective neutral organizing principle for society um you know what what happens in you know what happens kind of later like you know that is like thrown out the window because of experience right Mm. um and because of social resistance, obviously, yeah. huge you know movements and so on through throughout the past you know hundred years at least, um, what happens then is markets become a design space, and it becomes like you know full of kind of like policymakers and economists being like we can we can you know design markets to address bespoke uh, social problems or social kind of like issues. Um, and that's something that is like being rehashed again also in the, the crypto space mm. um, so a lot of market experimentation um, and you know that's a space where I'm kind of like a fence sitter about you know it's like sometimes I find it interesting other times less so um, and then uh, and then the the final one is you know markets as a, an escape route from hell and that's like a prelude to a piece that I, I really want to write um, that looks at you know, the united states in kind of late capitalism Mm. where you see you know there's this kind of weird uh like um form of uh like social liberation almost that people kind of take on where it's like you know oh you're not broke anymore you know you finally made it you're getting rich right um and and you see this kind of like mm, it's like an entirely uncritical approach to uh, capitalism, um, where kind of like you know feminist struggle, black struggle, uh, queer struggle. You know, it's about kind of amassing power in that space, right? Mm. And and where it's like, you know, you've you you know just you know make that money, right? Um, and I think it's something that I want to again, I want to engage with it very with a very kind of like open mind, mm. um, but like kind of crack that nut a little bit too, because you see it. You know, you see it so much, you know, definitely in the United States, a lot less so in Europe, but more and more in the UK and definitely in the crypto space, right? Where it's like in the crypto space, you have these kind of like people that are like have fun staying poor, you know, like this kind of like mentality where, you know... HF, SP. Exactly, where um, liberation means getting rich, you know. Um, And I want to engage with that perspective generously Mm -hmm. because obviously, like... Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, obviously, like, in many ways, when you live in extreme capitalist conditions, that's exactly what it means. Like, right. you get rich, you get free, you right. know? Um, that's the rules of that game. That's the rules of that game, right? And the the, the ability to step outside of that game is, is in some contexts, a luxury mm-hmm. that is it's an option that's not available and you know do i think that that's great do i think that that's the way forward do i think that that's true liberation i mean no but like you know come on it's a material reality and i think you know we need to engage with that in a generous way in order for a kind of a criticism to emerge not a criticism a critique and a project counter project to emerge that actually is grounded in people's real life experiences and it's important also in the crypto space because um you know, like it's so easy to deride people for this, like, oh, you're just speculating or like, oh, you know, it's all like, you know, it's all just dirty speculation or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, when it's like for some people, it's like literally the like kind of a way out, you mm-hmm. know, and they're like they're gunning for it and they're trying to get out. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I think, I, yeah, I think it's important to 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 um, get involved with that reality, that material reality and. Um, in order to take that next step that's like, okay, where do we go from here? You know? yeah.
0: So what did you mean by Price Hacker then, which is our like next term in the Because that's something I really wanted to um, look into. I mean, I had some vibes, but I don't know if they really hit your thoughts. I mean, when I read Price Hacker, I thought of Something you've been alluding to, this kind of like space between receiving the blockchain world as a neo-Hayekian thing, and also something around uh, David Columbia's critique, uh, which I think a lot of people read uh, at a certain time, especially people on the left, and then turned the blockchain signal off because mm-hmm. of that. And maybe there are other things like NIM that you're involved in, which is, a, I thought, was around maybe a, being a, using those tools but to do something else, but maybe you meant something
1: yeah. else. Yeah, I mean, you know, price hacker, I mean, like, I mean, a hacker is like definitely, you know, you just, you get involved, you tinker with a system right. to make it do something else. You build, yeah, but it's like, it. but the important thing with, with hacking is like, you take things apart, right, you get involved with what's there, you kind of you try and see how it works, and then you kind of redirect it to do something else that, you know, you play around with things, right? Mm-hmm. Um that's a super important part of, of of hacking. And like, I mean, in terms of like price specifically, like, uh, I mean, we can talk a lot about like, yeah, the, you know, kind of market manipulation mm-hmm. and so on that goes on. Um, but I'm, I guess, mm, more interested maybe in like, yeah, touching on Columbia. Um, so uh, David Columbia wrote, in my mind, a super important critique. Mm-hmm. Of Bitcoin, um, and he also touched a little bit on the kind of uh, determinisms that um, I was working through in my PhD, but much more from the question of monetary policy and gold. Um, and it's very much it's related to to the analysis that I was doing because, you know, the fascination with gold again it's this this attempt to try and anchor messy human experience in something concrete, real that objectively exists outside of ourselves, right? And in terms of the question of gold, um, so, I, you know, earlier I was talking about code and Ethereum, how code does that ideologically for Ethereum. The way that gold does that ideologically for Bitcoin that, that Columbia um, touches on is as an anchor for value, right? Mm. Um, and this is the big debate in monetary policy, right? It's like you have, you have well, not in monetary policy, in money, right? You have the, the, the pro-monetary policy people and the anti-monetary policy people. The anti-monetary policy people are like, get pol- throw policy out the window. We need something that's like hard facts. We need, it to, we need to anchor the value of money in gold, right? Yeah. And the people that talk about monetary policy are people that are like, no, money is fundamentally a social relation, um, and, you know, the kind of representation of that social relation is not entirely arbitrary. Like, the medium definitely matters, you know, whether we choose to make it banknotes or, um, you know, digital ledgers or gold. It has an impact on how those social relations are shaped, um, but it's not, the, it's not the crux of value and how value is formed. Value is formed through a social relationship and a social negotiation of, you know, what do we, you know how do we conceive value in society? Um, so, you know, Colombia attacks Bitcoin for being um, essentially kind of uh, a, a, a propaganda machine for right wing uh, ideas around money. Right. Um, and his, his work and his book is very important for highlighting that because it's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, but there's also the bit that's like, yeah, it's that and, you know, there's so much else going on in, in Bitcoin. Um, and there's also, again, a material reality that's that's kind of quite felt and where, you know, I think, yeah, we're going to see some interesting dynamics like as, you know, in, in contexts where inflation is big because that, it, you know, when it comes to inflation, as soon as inflation hits and Bitcoin is around, then it's like people's that narrative gets reinforced. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know there's maybe there's some truth there but the truth is more anchored in social conceptions rather than um the material facts having said that um i would like to kind of go a little bit into because I saw you had Lana Schwartz oh, yeah. um, on here as yes, well. Yes, exactly.
0: And 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 transactional communities which I thought was like that yeah. was actually something I hadn't come across before only came across in, in uh, your, your work um, yeah. have yet to delve into. Uh, yeah. And I think the idea of transactional communities but communities nonetheless are a really interesting exactly. um, thing to map onto blockchains.
1: Yeah. So Lana Schwartz uh, has written a very important book called New Money
0: mm.
1: and she uh, is yeah a, a fantastic researcher and writer That um, writes also exactly on this question of money as a medium and what the the medium actually does. Um, And so she kind of does a little history around how, you know, uh, printed money, um, the importance of printed money in the formation of uh, the state in the United States. Um, And it was literally like, you know, the printing of the kind of like pictures on the the, the bills were important for people to have a sense of belonging, despite like um, in, you know, the early days being like having like a lot of uh, divergence in terms of language, in terms of migration, in terms of backgrounds, everything. Um, You know, these kinds of the the money forms actually were hugely important as a kind of technology for tying uh, people together in, you know, as a community as a nation as a and Mm. uh and in you know in terms of the kind of reach of the state right um and the definition of territory so having that historical you know taking that historical background um she argues that that's kind of being massively renegotiated now Mm. and in a very similar way as you know public you know in many ways public infrastructure is being you know privatized um she's you know arguing that a similar tendency is happening with with money and money is a public good um and there's other writers that tie in quite importantly to this so authors like brett scott for example who yeah. also has a book that's just coming out now called we just
0: Cl- also moved to berlin not so long also
1: moved right? to berlin recently Go and he, yeah. he has a, a book coming out called cloud money which i'm you know i recommend everyone to have a look at as well um so you know, both both of them talk you know quite a bit about what does it mean when money goes digital, right? So what what is like new money forms, um, and you know. Uh, Lana Swartz is like, you know, she takes a very kind of like material um, analysis to this. So she looks at everything from like the different kinds of credit cards that people are using um, to the different kind of cryptocurrencies as well. And how, you know, as you know, the way that we pay, the way that we use money starts uh, diverging in these different ways, they're actually creating new forms of community, um, new layers of community that exist both above and, and below um, the kind of traditional state form and a national um, formation of identity and community, mm. um, so it's a super interesting approach. Um, Brett uh, is a little bit more kind of direct on the this the question of you know cashlessness, or, yeah. which he kind of calls the bankful rather than cashless. So he's like, you have to understand when you go cashless, you, it means that you're literally going from what is a public utility, a public payment utility, you know, it's it's which is accessible to everybody. Anyone that holds a pound coin holds the same pound coin, you know, fungible, basically, you know, this kind of, yeah. um, all the way through to, uh, you know, when you, when you then start using digital payment systems, it's private payment systems, right. right? These, these are, these are, you know, it's, it's banks, it's PayPal, it's private companies that also hold your payment data, right? And that's, you know, becoming increasingly significant, um, And to plug another important author in this space um, and very interesting character that I recommend everyone should read and in general kind of keep an eye on, um, Andres Arauz, who is, you know, previous central banker of Ecuador, um, previous presidential candidate of Ecuador um, and was working with the Korea government. He um, has written a lot on what he calls the data of money um, and on, uh, you know, the kind of geopolitics of payments right so the geopolitics of payment systems so things like swift and the implications for um, for monetary uh, sovereignty
0: like know. not giving it to russia for example
1: like not giving it to russia but also yeah but also yeah and but fundamentally the kind of like u.s control over over global payment global payment systems right yeah. which is which is a kind of like uh, key f- uh, for like uh, how do you Put a, like a forming moment for the whole crypto space as well, right, was the kind of WikiLeaks blockade, you know, the banking blockade against WikiLeaks, where it became clear that, like, okay, the U.S. actually has control over global payments. Right. Um, and through no legal process whatsoever can just cut off all means of, um, you know, getting donations, receiving donations for, you know, WikiLeaks when um, the, 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 the war logs were um, revealed, right, right. showing... Uh, essentially the killing of civilians by the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, right?
0: That's, yeah, super interesting, and and it's great to bring those books together. It also reminds me, if I can take it, an indulgent divergence. Like, especially uh, Lana Schwarz's work resonates a lot with, like, my first major piece about blockchain that I produced for the Berlin Biennale in 2016, which was also very much informed by your work, where I designed postage stamps for private companies uh, and blockchain companies, and I tried to kind of, like, put in the form of the postage stamp exactly the kind of geopolitics of what those various visions of those founders would mean um, for if they were representing some kind of state. So, like, I chose, like, three figures at the time, which seemed very prominent then as kind of also kind of representing different positions on the discursive space around blockchain. One was um, Vitalik, of course, and the emergent Ethereum um, when they were running Frontier, which I also found a very interesting uh, way of naming stuff, which is also very common in the tech space to kind of like draw on colonial um, uh, terminology. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that was positioning something uh, up the more kind of um, interesting, broader end. But then I had in the middle, I had Lalaji Srinivasan, Um, who was at the time the head of this company called 21 and that was then Coinbase and then now he's, I think, just A16Z, I don't know. But Belagis like, had this kind of post-nation-state narrative and, like, the technologist cloud versus the nationalist land and was really kind of positioning things too. So, like, a stamp with that on it and him on it was, I think, very interesting to produce. And then um, and then I had um, this banker, um, uh, Blythe Masters, who was kind of coming from, and she was so huge at that yeah. time, but, like, is now kind of invisible in the discourse. I don't know what
1: she's doing now. Yeah,
0: but, like, she stood in for, like, bankers coming in and using blockchains yep. to kind of for settlement basically, I and, I, and I designed a, a postage stamp with her uh, as a kind of queen's head type figure, as a kind of centralized diagram uh, going across the sheet of stamps with her head kind of going towards the middle, but it was a really interesting kind of exercise which leaned into exactly these questions about like state and stuff, and, and maybe one of the things I wanted to then move into, and maybe this is, um, oh, we've still got two things to go into, but I'm going to jump blind design um, and maybe we can tie that together with World Burns at the same time um, because I think one of the things that I was really like logged into at the time which I think continues to kind of roll on as a meme um, in these spaces. Um, and I'd be really interested to hear your kind of political take on it. It connects to the narratives that you mentioned around uh, Lana Schwartz, but like this book just kept coming up at the time called um, The Sovereign Individual that Bellagi was like banging all the whole time. And it was kind of like the only imaginary, I think, that was visible for this kind of post-nation-state self-moneyed kind of uh, free-floating agent that kind of like would be outside of nation-states. But it was kind of, it seemed to me as central as Hayek at the time um, to imagining what could be uh, coming from the geopolitics of blockchain. And I just, yeah, I would wonder if you have engaged with actually Balaji's work at all and, and or the sovereign individual or those types of reverberations around the same types of ideas, different formations of similar ideas in, in crazy different spaces.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of the self-sovereign and the individual sovereign is like, is definitely, you know, was very big for a period of time and, and is still pretty much... right. Um, uh Balaji, I've mostly kind of engaged with on Twitter, is <laughs> um, kind of like a, a guru for this space. You know, he kind of sends out these like very kind of like, um, what is it, affirmation type things, um, I find. But um, there was a whole period of time where people were super fascinated with the idea of um, making, you know, the state, you know, making the state kind of redundant. Right. Um, And there was quite a few kind of blockchain projects that was like, and it took the kind of ideological backdrop is a little bit this idea of volunteerism. So, you know, um, this idea that like, you know, creating, you know, these kind of float, these DAOs that would float around in, you know, digital space, um, people could kind of like come and go and become kind of members of them in a similar way as nations, but much more freely. But, yeah, the sovereign individual, I mean, it's something that I think we're still kind of dealing with a lot in um, in the question of, like, how to kind of, like, make sense of the data space, right, um, more broadly. And now I'm talking about kind of beyond Web3. Sure. But, like, this idea that, like, people should be able to control their own kind of, like, data, their right. own kind of funds. Um, and it's it, you know it's it's a little bit of a kind of dead end to my mind, <laughs> yeah, because the way that digital space is organized is just so fundamentally interconnected, is so fundamentally kind of interrelated, so there's no kind of like pure delineation between like what is my data versus someone else's data um or in terms of like how it impacts someone else um and that's that's something that I think is gonna become like a major kind of like question it you know already now but definitely going into the future um and it relates to a lot of new innovations also um some of the stuff that we're doing in nim which mm. i didn't get back to yet which yeah, was maybe, like yeah. the mixnet, net because <laughs> Nim is both a mixnet, but then there's you know the blockchain aspect the blockchain aspect of course runs the currency the reward currency that i was talking about earlier that rewards mixed nodes in the space um mm. But the idea is that we're also going to integrate something called coconut credentials into Mm. the blockchain um, as a kind of like native set of cryptographic techniques. Mm. Um, And, you know, what are coconut credentials? Coconut credentials are part of a kind of broader family of something called attribute based credentials, Mm. which means that and they use a a set of cryptographic um, techniques, including something called zero knowledge proofs. And it's, you know, it's the ability to, you know, what what these group of technologies do is they try and kind of deal with the question of um, identity um, and uh, do so in a way that is kind of privacy preserving. So it's this idea of being able to prove something about yourself, um, but keeping the data private fundamentally so. You can provide cryptographic proofs that you're definitely, you know, over 18 or whatever, but you don't have to kind of like show any documentation for it. And it does it through a whole set of kind of very nifty um, cryptographic relationships to, you know, institutions and, and identity systems and so on. So um, uh, why do I think this is going to be um, important? I think it's going to be important because it's going to, you know, it's where we're headed towards is this kind of strange uh these working out of these kind of compromises around how to make data available for things like machine learning algorithms, um, but still deal with the question of privacy and deal with the question of kind of personal autonomy. Um, and I actually think that is going to be a total mess to sort out. (laughs) Um, not just like in terms of like the technologies, but really like ethically, you know? Right. Um, because, uh, many of these questions are actually not technical questions. Many of these questions are like social questions around, you know, access and conditions for access. Um, So as we integrate more and more digital systems into our lives, um, uh, you know, those digital systems usually come with various forms of credentials. You're constantly logging in and out of things. You're constantly kind of, you know, and that is a kind of set of access controls in various ways that are going to become more and more kind of, Fine-grained um, right. and tied up with various conditionality. Um, and some of what these you know, zero knowledge proof systems enable is like the the ability to enforce those forms of conditionalities but in a privacy preserving manner. Hmm. So it's like it's quite dodgy in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Like, um, so that's like it's a space where, you know, I think, you know, in NIM we really want to kind of tread very carefully, but also be like quite kind of forceful in the voice that we bring into that space um, and drawn very kind of interdisciplinary uh, fields to try and kind of work out the what's at stake there.
0: Can I ask you why it's called Coconut? Uh. Protocol.
1: well it you know Is it coconut protocol Is it- yeah the, yeah coconut yeah. protocol yeah. i mean it to be honest like i'm not really sure like george Den- <laughs> george so it was written by george Danesis, uh-huh. um who's another interesting character he's yeah. one of our advisors and also an old friend also used to run indie media um and then made the fateful move of uh selling a you know company to facebook right which you know, was, you know, kind of quite um, controversial at the time because that company had come out of a research project that, in fact, uh, me and Francesca Bria were working on um, with George that was called Decode, and it was all about, you know, um, how smart cities, um, how to kind of, like, move from a kind of, like, private industry-driven smart city agenda towards something that's, like, driven by the public sector and by democratic institutions instead. So it was all about kind of democratic control over data, um... And uh, coconut protocol um, came out of that, you know, as a, as a kind of research and as a as a protocol, um, and that was spun up to a company that was then um, sold on to Facebook. Which, right. So there's historical reasons. Know. Yeah. Right. But you know, he's he's a good buddy, and everything is is forgiven in that sense. But it's it was a kind of interesting experience because it shows some of the bigger structural problems around the tech industry, right? Which yeah. is that you know, big tech companies and VCs just have so much money slushing around that like where else are you know, people start up companies with good ideas and stuff and then where else are they gonna go, right? Yeah. It's like the it's the it's the obvious option, it's the available option in many ways. Right.
0: It's just from like a cultural like analysis. Like, I'm always interested in words that get chosen, and like in the crypto space, there's actually quite a lot of food uh, references. Like there's sushi swap, and right. there's like yam protocol, and yeah, there's yeah. like all these kind of interesting That's things that true. come. And I'm just like, why? And you then know, coconut. Yeah, yeah, and then coconut and coconut is also can. can be, I mean, sushi can be problematic because it can be racialized, yeah. right? But coconut can definitely be racialized. It's Somebody true. coming from the South Pacific, like yep. it's uh, that can. So it's it's all very interesting to see like where these things come from, who chooses yeah, them. Yeah why they end up being these yeah, kind of beautiful yeah. signals. Away. Well,
1: it wasn't, it wasn't Americans or English people that chose the, the word as a Greek and... Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. Anyway, um,
0: um, but maybe this is a good moment to bring our conversation somewhat to a close. I just want to ask you like one more question or do one more prompt as we've gone through uh, all of your um, couplets. Uh, but um, as this is kind of like an art and uh, blockchain adjacent kind of conversation or, or it purports to be... Um, one of the reasons why I asked you on is because I, I really admire the way you work between arts and um, actually making art and also being a policy advisor, a technology strategist, a, a geography, uh, academic, etc. But maybe you could say one thing about like a recent installation you made, because I know that's part of your practice, and also like what you see as useful that the art space can do? Because I think that's something that you particularly have like a a really amazing um, definition of or a kind of window into.
1: Yeah, well, so I recently created an installation called Data Dashboards for Post-Human Life. And in fact, the, the previous time that I was at the New Institute was partially also to discuss that piece with Francesca Bria here. Nice. So the piece is a kind of fictional set of dashboards that imagines, you know, what if instead of data being very much in the hands of private companies and security agencies, um, data and the ability to process, analyze and visualize data was placed in the hands of ordinary people, more specifically me, more specifically (laughs) a human being trying to make sense of the, you know, environmental catastrophes and runaway technological development that we're experiencing right now. So those kind of fictional uh, speculative fictional data dashboards. Let's say um, included features like you know raise your own artificial intelligence, which means you know. And there, and there, I was trying to kind of like point to this fact that like you know when we look at the debates around artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms right now, it's very much around the kind of data and data diet, right? So it's like or data bias more specifically. Yeah. So people are kind of like you know, these these algorithms are being fed a ton of data that's just scraped off the internet um, and, you know, uh, reproduces extreme stereotypes that are present in, you know, in kind of polarized, uh, you know, internet data, you know, debates and so on. Sure. So you end up with like, you know, these, you know, some really kind of like weird um, things happening in the space and quite destructive things happening in the space. Um, But what's what's curious about that debate for me is not, necessarily like let's correct for that bias because let's be honest correcting for that bias means like more surveillance right Right. so that's for me that's the biggest problem with the whole bias debate i actually think the word bias should be like Scrapped yeah. entirely from that debate because there is no such thing as unbiased, right? Right, at all. Right. I mean, like
0: data is always situated. From data a position. is always
1: situated. Data is always produced. You know, right. um, there's it's, it's it's constructed. It's, it's not. constructed. Data is literally, and that's not to say that it's that it's not objective. Right. And I and I actually think that, and here Karen Barad is also a wonderful philosopher right. to use here. Um, data is one cut on reality. Right? right. It's 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 one particular perspective on um, reality that is true. For that given moment and person in time, for that observer, you know. But it's an observation and it's an annotation of that observation in a particular format, you know, whether it's numerical or textual also makes a difference. All these things make a difference, right? Um, So it's less about the question of bias and it's more about the question of like, what you know what are we you know what are we what are we choosing to to feed these machine learning algorithms what do we want to kind of have come out of it right yeah. and not to say that we can control exactly what comes out of it because we've already seen you know that it's 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 a bit of a kind of guessing game it's a bit of a kind of tweaking game right it's like you you pull the levers here and there right um but i but i really like this idea of like you know taking a more deliberate approach to data so this idea of like you know, deliberately selecting what diet you're feeding this little AI, this little machine learning algorithm. So design a set of um, interfaces around that. And that was just one of the features. And I had this other feature called nearest neighbor, um, feature called garden, feature and, and the uh, settings board, you know. So it was, it was this kind of like, yeah, a bit of a kind of like fantasy around like, what would I want if I had, a you know, if I could choose anything in the world of like, in terms of capacity, in terms of visualizing around the question of data. Um, But then like, like I said earlier, you know, the problem is that, you know, you want, if you want to kind of create yet another dashboard, similar to the ones that, you know, um, advertise, you know, ad tech driven businesses and, um, the NSA use, then you end up in a situation where you create more appetite for data, right. And you create more need for, uh, surveillance and, and capturing of data. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of those constant problems, right? It's like you you have a critique, you take a step into that space, and then you become implicated. <laughs> like, you're but as an artwork, like you then use. So that, as an artwork, right. so as an artwork that was then translated into these like dashboards yeah. um, that had no back end, I have to say at all. It was literally <laughs> just like graphics, moving graphics, um, that were on you know 35 devices, phones and and, and tablets, um, scattered in a kind of a kind of cloud in a space. Um, and then I had uh, three different audio inputs, one that was kind of this like a bit sci-fi soundtrack in the background. Um, and then I had a kind of voice coming out of lots of different devices that were kind of like sp- speaking about the... It's kind of an advertising voice. It was, so I took this kind of like, you know, these new features of the data dashboard and it's going to solve all your problems and your anxieties <laughs> around the climate crisis. And yeah, so it was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek advertising for my fictional data dashboard. But what I was going to say was it was a wonderful opportunity for me to just kind of take a more affective approach to a space where I otherwise tend to work, you know, or have to work in a very um, logical and a very kind of reasoned manner, you know, working with engineers, working with policymakers, working on, you know, communications in the space, um, and I think the role of uh, artists and cultural producers is exactly to, you know, grab these otherwise quite kind of abstract schematics and models and technologies that get deployed to kind of like grab, you know, these things and really like start interrogating what does it mean to live with these technologies? What does it mean to be a human um, in an environment that's shaped by these technologies? Right. And that kind of like affective, very human, very experiential. Um, and very immediate uh, engagement is something that is otherwise like severely lacking um, in the design of, of these technologies. I mean, like, okay, interface design is sure, there's like A-B testing, people are kind of checking out how do people respond, but it doesn't actually ask that bigger question of what does it feel like? You know, what does it mean to be not just an individual, but a society living with these technologies? What does it mean when more and more these technologies like intermediate pretty much every single um, thing that we're doing um, with each other and together.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe to really tie this uh, conversation together and, and close off this podcast, I think that is something that like I can do. It can kind of build these models, test these things, which are kind of like impossible in the world otherwise, but can then be kind of imagined at a kind of low risk outcome and can be this intellectual tool and aesthetic tool for distilling and, like, uh, expressing some of what it feels like to live with a particular system or what it might feel like to live with a particular system. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jaya, uh, thank you so, so much for coming on Seed Phrase and being here with me at the New Institute. Thank you. And I look forward to following Nim and your other work and reading your various essays that come out in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Seed Phrase. Thanks so much to Jaya for making the time to speak to us. Again, I appreciate the fact that while she's a theorist and works with histories of ideas and thinking from emergent practices, she's also able to work in a company that's building the things that she finds responds to the most urgent parts of her research. A very special thanks again to our host, the new institute in Hamburg, and to Amnesia Scanner for the music. See you next time.